This week, I was reading an article online that was describing the difficulty that many megachurches or large churches are having in trying to replace their founding pastors. We are at a time where in the 70s and 80s and 90s, many of the men who went out and started what later became some of the very first megachurches are are reaching retirement age or getting older. Now, most pastors, they don't retire. They preach until they stop or fall over or 70 or more. Uh, But most of those guys are stepping away from their pulpits. And they're having a difficult time trying to replace them or, or even trying to replace in some large churches pastors that have been there for a long period of time. Now, when I was in seminary, we used to discuss that probably the most difficult job for a pastor to try to fill is to step into the shoes of a founding pastor or a pastor who has been at a church for 15 years or longer. It's just an impossible task because if they're the founding pastor, they're the only pastor that that church has ever known. And if they've been there longer than 15 years, then they have been there a generation and long enough that their presence has become ingrained in the congregation. In seminary, they told us the person that followed one of those pastors, they had a name for it. They called it a sacrificial lamb because those pastors usually didn't last longer than three years. And some of them didn't even make it past a year. Now, it's not the fault of the pastor who is leaving most of the time because they've done nothing except love their people and pastor the church. It's just human nature. Because if you're in a church and the only pastor you ever hear it leaves, you have an allegiance to them or a love for them that is difficult to separate into the new pastor. And it's natural for you to love the pastor that led you to the Lord and to love the pastor that baptized you or did your wedding or did a funeral of one of your family members, to love the pastor that that had uh, helped you grow spiritually all throughout the years. But the problem is that same love, that same uh, loyalty can become very dangerous and misguided when it begins to affect the life of the church. When it begins to cause you to divide yourself against any new leadership or any new spiritual authority. Now luckily, today many churches are going through what's called intentional interim. When a pastor leaves that have been there a long time, they bring a retired pastor to come in for about two years and take the place of that sacrificial pastor and really help the church transition to a new pastor. And some churches are developing a secession role to where uh, a new pastor will come in and work with the older pastor that's retiring and they'll do share ministry. And then eventually that older pastor will step out and the new pastor will step in. And that works some of the time, but not all of the time. I can remember in the early 90s when Dr. W.A. Criswell, who was the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, announced that he was going to retire. Now that was phenomenal because Dr. Criswell had been at the First Baptist Church of Dallas for almost 50 years. And in that 50-year time period, he had grown it into what was the most uh, influential Baptist church in the United States of America. It was the flagship church for all Baptist churches during the 60s and 70s and 80s under Dr. Criswell. And he cast a long shadow. And I remember talking to ministerial friends and thinking, who in the world could ever step in after a pastor as larger than life as Dr. Criswell, who had been there 50 years, and expect 
to be the next pastor. We were surprised in early 1990 when the church unanimously called Dr. Joel Gregory, who was a great pastor of a neighboring church, Travis Avenue in Fort Worth, to be the lead pastor. And they called him unanimously. And and many of us thought if there was ever a person that could fill Dr. Criswell's shoes, it was Joel Gregory. Dr. Gregory was known for his booming voice and his incredible sermons and his alliteration and his dynamic handling of the Word of God. I loved, of all the people that I've heard preach, I would put Dr. Gregory up there in the top three with just his mastery and power of the Word of God. And so we thought, well, surely if anyone could have done it, it's going to be Dr. Gregory. And then when I was in seminary, just two and a half years later, we got the word that Joel Gregory had officially resigned just two and a half years as the pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas. And the reason for his resignation was he cited that the secession policy wasn't working due to the lack of the support of the leadership in the church. The same problems that other churches have. Now, it didn't help in First Baptist Dallas that Dr. Criswell stayed in the church. And he sat on the front pew every Sunday, which could be a little intimidating. And Mrs. Criswell, his wife, taught the largest Sunday school class in the church. And so everything that Dr. Gregory was trying to do, Mrs. Criswell was saying, let's slow down and let's slow down. So there were a lot, a lot of problems Now, that's just one example of hundreds, if not thousands of churches, both large and small, who have dealt with conflict and division and distraction due to personality and leadership. And sadly, probably in a room this size, many of you have experienced that kind of conflict firsthand. Now, I'm telling you all of that because I want you to understand it's not a new problem. It's not a new phenomenon. Matter of fact, it is at the root of almost all of the problems that Paul is going to deal with in the church of Corinth. It is the foundational problem that is facing and allowed to spring up all the other problems that he addresses in 1 Corinthians. And he understands because he addresses it first. Last week and the week before, he was, he was talking about our identity in Christ. He was talking about all that we've been given. And today he is going to begin to address the problems in the church. And the first thing he addresses is the division and the lack of unity in the church. Because Paul knows that if it's not dealt with, if it's not solved, it can destroy a church's body. It can destroy the message of the church, the witness of the church. And if we're not careful in that destruction, it leaves tons of wounded Christians in its wake. Statistics show out that right now, this morning, one out of every ten church in America is facing conflict and problems. One out of every ten church meeting right now. And of those one out of every ten churches... Eight out of every ten that is dealing with conflict, the conflict revolves around leadership and personality. Not doctrine, not theology, not other disagreements. It is all based on leadership and personality. And at a time, as I said earlier, when our nation is so divided along race and politics and philosophy and class, we need a unified voice. We need a unified message, a unified example of the powerfully diverse but united church. But I'm afraid we have spent so long fighting each other that we have lost our chance to speak to our nation. I want you to listen as Paul addresses the issue because maybe you'll understand how big a problem 
this really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll come back and look as we go through it. Paul says, I appeal to you, brother. And the word, their appeal, is the Greek word parakleo. It's where we get Holy Spirit. It means I come alongside you. He's saying, listen, I'm not preaching to you. I'm coming alongside you to encourage you, to, to let you know how important this is. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you that you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and so that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Then he explains what's going on in the church in Corinth. My brother's son from Chloe's house, and Chloe was a member of the church at Corinth, and so apparently she had gone to Paul, he's in Ephesus, and shared with him specifically what's going on. And so Paul begins to name names, and that's why I like Paul. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. Paul doesn't say some of you, a few of you. Paul says you and you and you and you. And he begins to name names. Some have told me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And another says, I follow Christ. And then he asks this powerful question. Is Christ divided? And he's talking about the church. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? For I am thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Then an addendum comes in later, which is probably uh, added by Sosthenes, his secretary. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. And then he gives the power statement, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now, as I said earlier, it's common that when you gather a group of people in a room and you spend any amount of time together, there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be factions of personalities. But he's not talking about simple disagreements. He's not talking about factions of personality. The word he uses here, division, comes from the Greek word where we get schism, and it literally means to rip apart and to tear apart. He's saying what I'm hearing is that in the body of Christ, there in Corinth, there are some among you who are ripping apart, tearing apart the church, tearing it from its very faction. What he helps us to understand in verse 10 is that the church, by its very creation, is created in oneness. See, you and I, when we accepted Jesus Christ and became members of the church, we became united, brothers and sisters, with all other Christians in the world. And in the local body, we are united because of the cross. You see, here at First Baptist Blowing Rock, we are not united because we all live in this area or because we all act a certain way or have certain jobs or have certain incomes or because we have a Baptist background or this kind of background. We are united in the body of Christ because that's what the cross demands. We are to be united because it's our very nature. Paul is saying to have disunity, to have uh, this kind of quarrels going on in the church is not natural. He says, you and I now belong to Christ, and our behavior in the church should resemble our new owner more than it resembles our old owner. The very power that the church has to change the world comes from its unity in Christ. Paul's saying when that is torn, when that is ripped apart, the church loses its effectiveness. 
People ask, why in the world is our culture at such a rapid pace devolved? Why has our culture gotten to the place that many of you just 15 years ago, things that we would think are unheard of are now not only tolerated, they're celebrated. How did we get here? We got here because the church was spending all of its time fighting over petty things and petty differences and we have been silent to a world that is listening for a message. See, they weren't fighting over faith or doctrine. They were fighting over conflicting desires, selfish desires, wanting what they wanted. Listen to James. He describes what these kind of quarrels do. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? They come from desires that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. And you kill and you covet to get what you cannot have. See, James is reminding us what Paul is reminding us, that the reason we have quarrels in the church is because we allow that old selfish nature to rise up and to take control. There was a time and a place where each one of us wrestled with our selfishness, and we still do. We all have that old nature inside of us that wants our way. We want it the way we want it. We want it the way uh, how we've always had it or the way that we think is best. But the problem comes when we allow that selfishness to overwhelm the humility and the oneness that we have in Christ. And we begin to tear each other up. Paul says, you've got a new nature. You say, that's the way I want it. Well, guess what? The way you want it has been crucified with Christ. It no longer lives. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have an opinion in the church. Our form of governments in the Baptist church is that everyone has an opinion because it's your church. It's not my church. It's not the deacon's church. It's the body's church with Christ as the head. And so everyone has a say. But there comes a point where we take those things that we think are most important to us and subject them to the will of the people. To what God is leading. See, the question's not, what's best for me? What do I like? What do I want? The question in the church now becomes, what does God want? So many people, when we get in business meetings or we get in church conferences, they stand up and they spend all the time talking about what I like, what I want, what I think. Where is the question when we say, what does God want? Or even better than that, when we say, if we're going to make a decision for this church, we need to ask ourselves, what will give God the most glory in our actions? That wasn't happening at the church in Corinth. Few things demoralize, discourage, and weaken the church as much as bickering and backbiting and fighting. And few things undermine the message of the church before the world so effectively. Heard a pastor say that that's a high price to pay for an ego trip. Paul reminds us in verse 10, he says, We are to be united in mind and thought. That word united in mind and thought is one Greek word. It, it literally means to speak the same thing. Paul says, while we all have different opinions, while we all have different thoughts, while we all have different desires, the church has got to be one when it comes to our doctrine. The church has got to be one when it comes to the way we care and concern and love one another. The church has got to be one in our attitudes towards each other and how we treat each other. The church has got to have a united voice in our community. Now understand that unity is not uniformity. 
And so many people mistake that. Uniformity is something that is pressed on us from outside. Unity is something that comes from the inside. Unity is something that comes because of who we are in Jesus Christ. It begins to well up inside of us. As we die to self, other people's needs become more important. Other people's desires become more important than what I want or what I think. That only happens in a changed heart. Uniformity says everybody has to look a certain way, act a certain way, and talk a certain way because that makes us all one. That doesn't make you one. All uniformity do, it does is rob us of our diversity. And the power of the church, the miracle of the cross, is that we have the most diverse body in the world. Where else can you find people from every background? We have people in here probably from 30 different states. All types of backgrounds, all types of upbringing, all types of philosophies. People from all different types of jobs and careers, worldviews and mindsets and principles and guidelines. But yet in that diversity, we can all come together and be united. That doesn't happen on its own. It only happens because of the cross. And that is the power of unity. Paul says later that it's our diversity, different gifts and different passions and different purposes coming together united that unlocks the church's power to make a difference in the world. We're not seeing it happen because we don't have a united church. I love the term that he uses there in verse 10, perfectly united. He says you are to be perfectly united. It's a medical term in the Greek. It means that taking a broken bone and mending it back together. When it is mended back together, it is perfectly united. So really, the Greek language is much more poetic than our translation. What Paul is doing here is he's using a wordplay on perfectly united and division, schisms, tear apart and rip. Basically what he's saying is, when you have division in the church, you are taking the very thing... Our brokenness that God mended back together miraculously and you're breaking it again. You're taking the very thing that makes the church the church and you're destroying it for your own desires. Verse 16, Paul gives us examples. He he starts talking really in verse 11 through 16. He starts giving us these examples of groups. And you don't get wrapped up into the groups. But uh, And I don't think they identified themselves like this. They didn't have t-shirts that said, I'm with Apollos or I'm with, you know... Peter, or I'm with Paul. Uh, it was just how they were easily identified by what their philosophy was. Now, as you look at these four different groups, it is very easy to see the very same thing in today's churches. Because the more things change, the more things stay the same. And Paul probably didn't even know that there was a group that was using him to justify divisions in the church. Apollos didn't know that. Peter certainly didn't know that. Look at what he names the groups by. He says, first, some of you say, I follow Paul. Paul was the former pastor. He was the pastor emeritus. He was there a year and a half. He led most of them to the Lord. He started the church. But then he left. And a new pastor came. The new pastor wasn't Paul. The new pastor didn't act like Paul. And the new pastor didn't do things like Paul. So this group that is saying what they're saying by saying, I follow Paul, is I don't like the way things are going. I want them the way things were. This is the group that would say, I remember the good old days. Even though it was only three years before, I remember the good old days. 
when Paul was here. Paul would have never done it that way. These are the traditionalists. These are those who long so much for the good old days that they're willing to sacrifice the church on that altar. Then some said, I follow Apollos. Apollos is the new pastor, and Paul mentored him. Paul's the one who said, this is the pastor I want for this church. But he was new. And because he was new and he didn't do things the way Paul did, there were people against him. And so there is a group, because people were against him, that rose up for him. Because that always happens in the church. You get one group that's for this and another group that's got to be against it because that's just part of our sinful nature. And so this other group rose up and said, we like the way Apollos is doing it. We love it the way he's doing it. Bring it on, Apollos. He was an orator. Paul was very, probably uh, a quiet teacher. Paul was not dynamic. Paul was not uh, known for the way that he spoke and his outgoing. He was just very simple and the power of God flowed through him. Apollos was just the opposite. He was known as a dynamic speaker, a dynamic teacher. The Word of God came alive. That was so different. And you had one group that said, yes, we want it this way. I remember when I'd only been at this church, which is hard to believe is 12 years ago, when I'd only been at this church about three months, I had a call from a church member that said, Pastor, we need to talk to you. We have grave concerns. Now, whenever you get a call from a church member that says, we have grave concerns... And they didn't say I, because it's never I have grave concerns. It's always we. Because there's always that proverbial other people. I've heard other people say. I've heard other people are talking. They didn't say I. We have grave concerns. So sure, come on in. I was praying, Lord, what, what did I do now? I've only been here two and a half months. And I, surely I hadn't made anyone mad yet or done something so bad yet. And they came in with the most sincere and serious face. And they said, we have a very strong problem with the way that you preach. And I thought, I'm preaching from the Word of God. I've been preaching for 25 years. What's the problem? They said, you walk around. You don't stand behind the pulpit. Serious. Because the pastors they had always had stood behind the pulpit. They didn't move. They didn't come over here and threaten this group on this side. Okay? They stayed behind the pulpit. So I did the only logical thing. I took the pulpit out for a little while. Then I just moved around. And then I brought it back. Nobody even noticed. Not to be ornery. Just to show that we allow so many little things to become major things because it's not what we're comfortable with. It's not what we're used to. That was this group of Apollos. They wanted change. And you had another group that said, we follow Cephas, Peter. This is probably the Jewish group. They wanted the law. This was the group that said everybody should act and do certain things. They believed that everybody should follow the law. So you all needed to be doing things like they were doing. You ever had a group in the church that acted like because they were convicted of doing something that everybody should be convicted of doing something? And if you weren't convicted of doing it and you didn't do it the way they did it, then you weren't as spiritual as them. That was this group. They were judging the other people. You're not as spiritual. You're not because you don't keep the food Dietary laws. You don't act the way we act. You don't, you don't put on your prayer shawl when you come into the house of God. You don't cover your head. You don't do all of these things that were part of the Jewish law that we've been set free from. There's nothing wrong with having your own convictions. God doesn't convict. You understand, and this is free. This isn't part of my message. 
you understand that God doesn't convict us all of the same things at the same time. Because we're not all at the same place spiritually. We're what John calls walking in the light. And think of it as as the light being down there in the Christian walk. And as you walk closer to a light, what happens? If you've ever been in the dark and you've held a spotlight somewhere and you're way back here, what do you see? You don't see much, just shadows, darkness. But the closer you get to the light, the more of you is revealed. And you see the people that are up here walking in the light, they're seeing parts of them that they didn't see back there. That God is saying, listen, you need to probably get that out of your life. That's probably hurting your marriage. That's probably hurting your relationships. And so they're getting convicted of it. And the problem comes when they turn around and go to these people that are just dealing with basic things of what they can see in their relationship to God. And they start saying, you're not as spiritual as we are. You need to get rid of that. And you need to get rid of that. Let's stop being the Holy Spirit. He's got a busy enough job on his own. That's what was happening with this Peter group. And then you had the last group, which sounds like the best group to be a part of. Not that I'm with Paul or I'm with Cephas or I'm with Apollos. They said, I'm with Christ. Now, they had a great name. They just had a bad spirit. Because these were the pseudo-spiritual people. These were the ones who were creating a spiritual hierarchy. We don't need any leaders. We have Jesus. We don't need anybody telling us what to do or how to do it or where to, because we'll follow Jesus. Basically, what they were saying is we don't want to be accountable to anyone. We're going to decide who is spiritual and who's not spiritual. Can you imagine? Can you believe it? Fighting in the church? Can you believe that there was a group of people who took sides and didn't like each other? Can you believe that there was a group of people who avoided and ignored certain people just because they didn't think the way they did? Can you believe there was a group of people that were whining and complaining and fighting because they didn't get their own way? Can you believe in the church of God there was gossiping to undermine someone's influence, that people would actually lie about somebody else to undermine what their support was? Can you believe that in the church people were demeaning other spirituality because they didn't think the way you did? You don't look surprised. Now stop trying to figure out what your neighbor's group is, because all of us have fallen in this trap before. It's easy for us to cast stones, but at one time or another in all of our lives, we have fallen into this trap. This trap of, of thinking what I want is most important. What I believe is most important. Now today we don't identify ourselves that way. Nobody says I'm with Rusty or I'm with we don't but what happens in the church is there is an underlying current of division and divisiveness. And we sometimes cloak it in spirituality. See, we don't say, I'm saying we need to do this because this is what I want. No one in a business meeting has ever said, this is what we need to do because I like it. I want it. What do they do? We cloud it in spirituality. I really feel like the Lord is leading us. I've heard people in a business meeting that stood in. Listen, I'm all for justifying your opinion. But I've heard people in a business meeting get up and talk. And if you voted against them, you were against God and America and apple pie, and you hated Jesus. I mean, that's basically the only place you could be if you stood against them, because they cloaked it in such spirituality. 
but you can call it what it's called. Selfish division based on self-preference that breaks apart the church that God has put together. Now, sadly, in today's church, for those of you that have grown up in church, we think it's just a normal reality for churches to have conflict. Some of you have been in churches that the whole time you were in churches, they were in conflict. And we just think that's the reality. But Paul in this passage makes it clear that it's not how it should be and it's not the way it has to be. Nor should any church ever settle for this. It's not a sign of reality in today's culture. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity and it's unhealthy and it's dangerous. I remember a story of George Whitfield, who was a great preacher in the Great Awakening in the 1700s. He did revivals all over North America, all over England, and God was moving in an incredible way through Whitfield's preaching. He was a member of the Church of England, but Baptist and Congregationalist and Methodist were all coming to his sermons to hear him preach. But he was also a strong Calvinist, what we would call uh, Reform today, Presbyterian in his theology. And so one day someone in one of his congregations asked him after the service, Mr. Whitfield, do you think John Wesley will be in heaven? Do you think we'll see John Wesley in heaven? Now John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, the Methodist church, and he was a staunch opponent to Calvinism. And so basically he was saying, do you think we'll see this guy that disagrees with you in heaven? And Whitfield, without missing a beat, looks at the man and says, no. I don't think we'll see Mr. Wesley in heaven. Matter of fact, I think Mr. Wesley will be so close to the throne of God because of his passion and his heart for God that we'll be lucky if we just see part of him. Because John Wesley understood, George Whitfield and John Wesley understood that what divides us on earth doesn't divide us in heaven. And the job of the church is to bring a taste of that to earth. John Wesley was asked the same thing one time. He was asked, Mr. Wesley, do you think there'll be Episcopalians, Church of England, in heaven? Wesley said, no, I don't think there'll be Episcopalians. I don't think there'll be Presbyterians. I don't think there'll be Baptists. I don't think there'll be Catholic. Matter of fact, I don't think there'll be Methodists in heaven. I think all that's going to be in heaven is Christians. We spend so much time focusing on what divides us. Isn't it time we focus on what brings us together? Pride and selfishness never brings people together. It only drives them apart. Self-will, self-interest, and self-centeredness will always get in the way of God's priority for the church, which is unity. Christ did not design His body to be divided. What did He say in verse 13? Is Christ divided? No. Neither can the church. He's reminding us that you can love your pastor. You can love your denomination. You can love your church. You can love your own opinion. But your allegiance is to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Paul closes by reminding them and us what the real point is here. Paul says in verse 17, I didn't come to baptize people. Because they were getting in a fuss over who baptized. They were saying, I got baptized by Paul. I'm more important. I got baptized by Peter. I'm more important. Paul said, listen, I didn't come to baptize people. I came to preach the gospel. That's our job. Our job is not to get wrapped up 
into form and function and personality. Our job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and hurting world. And when we get so sidetracked on so many other things, and listen, let's be honest, most of the fights in the church are over who loves Jesus more. We're arguing and fighting over who loves Jesus more. That's what it sounds like. But understand, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. When a church allows programs or personality to become the priority, it's a recipe for disaster. Maybe you didn't hear it. Listen. When a church allows programs or personalities to become the priority, it's a recipe for disaster because it will always lead to division and disunity. Because what happens is it allows a foothold to become a stronghold in the church. And it leads you and I to love methods and men more than our mission. And our message will always get distorted. The beauty of the cross, the beauty of the church is everyone in this room is different. Praise the Lord. I wouldn't want us to be the same. But it is the unity of that diversity that happens at the cross that is the answer for a divided nation. Because you see, the power of the cross was powerful enough to bring me and you together from such diverse background and to make a church where no one could ever imagine this coming together. It's that same power that can bridge the divide of race in creed, in politics, in culture. You and I must never let our selfish desires get in the way of our mission. Let's pray.